Thank you. Good evening. Thank you, Professor Hecht. Professor Hecht rightly noted the significance of the question mark at the end of the title of this talk. And my task tonight is to magnify that question mark and place the issue of settlements in what I believe is a proper and wider context of other issues, perhaps more pressing issues, um, more on this side of the intangibles of this conflict rather than of the tangibles. For over a decade, the international community, led by the vigorous efforts of the United States, uh, has tried to find a way of solving the Middle East crisis. And the reason I believe that the best and most dedicated efforts of the peacemakers have failed is because they have been looking for the precise point on the map that will somehow resolve all outstanding grievances. They've been looking for that formula that will end the conflict and that will result in a comprehensive agreement. Now, it's certainly true that there is no end to concrete grievances on both sides. There are issues of settlements, roadblocks, occupation, issues of terrorism. Nevertheless, I would argue that the intangibles of this conflict are far more significant than the issues with which we've all become familiar. And by the intangibles, I mean especially questions of legitimacy, right to exist, existential fears on both sides. And until the peacemakers don't begin to seriously contend with the intangibles of the conflict and continue to insist on focusing all of their efforts on the concrete issues with the hope or the assumption that the intangibles will somehow find their way or fall into place once we have figured out the mechanics, the technicalities of peacemaking, I believe that their best efforts will continue to fail. For many decades, the conflict was defined by a mutual sin, a sin that was shared by both Arabs and Israelis. And that was the sin of one-dimensionality. And by that I mean that each side appropriated all of truth and justice and historical claims to its side and very generously attributed all of the crimes and grievances to the other side. And each side became adept at promoting its own claim, and each claim has depth and passion. Each side became adept at promoting its own pain, so that sometimes in those, in those years, I felt that the two sides resembled beggars in India, if any of you have been to India, 
where they will show their wounds demonstratively to tourists to try to win some, some sympathy and coins. And that each side was really reduced to a demeaning competition in which we waived our own historical traumas and denied the historical traumas of the other side. Increasingly, in recent years, this pathological tendency has taken on a new form in which each side looks at the other and sees the incarnation of its own worst historical traumas. When Arabs look at Israelis, what they increasingly see are incarnations of the, or the latest phase, the latest wave of the crusaders, the colonialists, all those outside forces that came to the Middle East to conquer and humiliate the, the Arab world. And if you look at the history of Zionism, we certainly have done our part to reinforce those negative perceptions. We engaged in an alliance with colonialist England in the 20s and 30s to build up the infrastructure of the emerging Jewish state. The wars that we won in 48, 56, 67, in which the borders expanded reinforced the Arab sense of helplessness. And finally, the active campaign, the program of expanding settlements into the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan, only further reinforced the Arab world sense of helplessness and created what I believe is a misperception in which the Jewish return home of an indigenous people was seen as one more wave, perhaps the final wave of Western colonialism. When we Israelis look at the Arab world, we too see the incarnation of our own worst historical traumas. And here again, the Arab world has done its share to reinforce our misperception in which rather than seeing the Arab world as a fellow traumatized nation struggling to define its place in the world, we have defined the Arab world in effect as the latest incarnation of the Nazis. And if one goes back into the history of this conflict, one certainly sees that the Arab world, too, has done its share to reinforce that negative stereotype, beginning with the leader of the Palestinian national movement in the 1930s and the 40s, the Mufti, Hajamin al-Husseini, who spent the war years of World War II uh, in Berlin as the personal guest of Heinrich Himmler, and who was trying to organize from Berlin a Muslim jihad to support the final solution. When the Arab world invaded the Jewish state in 1948, the head of the Arab League actually used the words war of extermination to define what he anticipated would be the result 
of the Arab invasion. And finally, the wave of suicide bombings of the last few years have, in some sense, finalized that Jewish perception or Israeli perception of the Arab world as the new Nazis. We experience the suicide bombings as many pre-enactments of the genocidal impulse. The goal of suicide bombings is to kill as many Jews as possible. And the way in which the suicide bombings have been celebrated in the Arab world have only reinforced our perception that we are facing what the Passover Haggadah refers to as in every generation a new enemy arises to destroy you. So that when we look at the Arab world, we see the latest wave of genocidal enemies. And the tragedy here is that each side of this conflict has acted out of its own particular history in the only way that it really could have. The Jews had no choice but to return to the land of Israel, not just because of the Holocaust or anti-Semitism or the pogroms, but because the most basic self-definition of the Jewish people has always been tied to the land of Israel. The Jews are not simply a religion, and this is something that sometimes gets lost in talk about the Abrahamic traditions. Yes, there are three Abrahamic traditions, but the Jewish Abrahamic tradition is a bit different than the Christian and the Muslim in that we define ourselves as a nation tied to a specific land and a specific city with a religious tradition. So that when it became possible for the Jewish people to return to the land, we had no choice given the logic of our history and spiritual identity, but to return home. By the same token, I believe that the Arab world, given the logic of its own history, had no choice but to resist that return. So that when I often see outsiders, well-intentioned outsiders, arguing about who's right and who's wrong in this conflict, I do think there is right and wrong here, but right and wrong belongs very generously to both sides. And given the fact that we have acted out the imperatives of, our, of the logic of our own histories, I think that ultimately, for whatever rights and wrongs exist on both sides, both sides are ultimately true to their own history. Now, I began this talk by noting that the sin of non-recognition of the right of the other side to identify itself in its, own, in its own historical legitimacy was the mutual sin shared by both Arabs and Israelis. And until the first intifada of the late 1980s and early 1990s, I believe that that was true, as true on the Israeli side as it has been on the Arab side. And the 
most telling example of that lack of legitimacy toward the Palestinians, denying the Palestinians the right to define themselves as a people, was summed up by Golda Meir, the Israeli Prime Minister of the early 1970s, who once said, there is no Palestinian people. By which she meant that the Palestinians had never in the past identified themselves as a separate nation within the overarching Arab nation, and that the Palestinians didn't deserve to create Arab state number 23. That Israeli position, which was entirely normative until the First Intifada, began to decisively change in the late 1980s. That First Intifada was a shock to the Israeli psyche on several levels. First of all, we had to confront the fact that we had lied to ourselves when we had insisted that we were maintaining a benign occupation which is how we routinely referred to the occupation in those years. And we had to finally realize that there is no such thing as a benign occupation, and that the warnings of the Israeli left from the very beginning, from 1967 onward, when Israel came into possession of the territories, turned out to be prophetic. A nation that tries to forcibly incorporate another people into its midst, a people that does not want to be part of your society and whom you don't want as part of your society, in the end, that process will corrupt you and you will end up being occupied by the occupation. The second realization that began to sink in into the Israeli public was that perhaps the Israeli left was right about something else, which is that the Palestinians do have the right to define themselves as a separate nation within the Arab world, and that we need to begin thinking seriously about a Palestinian state. The practical consequence of this breakthrough in Israeli consciousness, very painful breakthrough, was the election of Yitzhak Rabin in 1992, and just how painful and traumatic that breakthrough was is being observed this week in Israel on the 10th anniversary of Rabin's assassination by a Jewish extremist. And following Rabin's election in 92, a year later, the Oslo process. The Oslo process was an Israeli initiative, and we tend to forget that Israel undertook the Oslo process after it had already militarily suppressed the Intifada, so that on the ground, technically, we could have continued with the occupation had we chosen to. The majority of Israelis, and not necessarily only on the left, had come to the conclusion that it was in Israel's own urgent interests to initiate the Oslo process and try to put an end to the occupation. More profoundly than seeing Oslo as a technical process designed to extricate Israel from an untenable moral and demographic 
dilemma. The Oslo process became embraced by a majority of Israelis as a moral imperative. And here the left decisively won the argument against the right within Israeli discourse. And a majority of Israelis, to one extent or another, embraced the proposition that this is a conflict between two national rights, or as the Israeli novelist Aleph Bet Yehoshua once called it, right versus right. And we took that realization very far. Our historians began to rewrite our history books so that the previous one-dimensional understanding of this conflict yielded to a more nuanced historiography. And we even began teaching our children the Palestinian version of this conflict alongside with the Zionist version. And sometimes we went so far that several textbooks actually had to be recalled because they presented the Palestinian narrative more vigorously than they did the Zionist narrative. So that Israeli society in the 1990s went very far in reaching out to Palestinians, reaching out to trying to empathize, trying to understand what does this conflict look like through Palestinian eyes. I participated in that process of empathy in my own way. In the late 1990s, I undertook a journey as a religious Jew into Islam and Christianity, into the neighbors, into the faiths of my neighbors. And I went into mosques and monasteries and holy places for about a year and a half through the West Bank and even Gaza in an attempt to try to experience something of the devotional lives of Muslims and Christians. I was privileged at certain points to be admitted into the Muslim prayer line, into the ceremonies of the Sufi mystics, and I made clear that I wasn't looking to convert, thank you, but I'm very, very interested in learning to experience something of how Islam encounters God's presence. And that was a journey that was very much part of the Israeli sensibility of the 90s. By no means all Israelis were reaching out to Palestinians. We certainly had a very strong and resistant hard line. Nevertheless, what had changed in the 90s was that the percentages in Israeli society shifted, and for the first time, the left, represented by Peace Now, became the majority political culture. Now, it's certainly true that it was easier for Israelis than it was for Palestinians to reach out and to try to develop a more nuanced understanding of this conflict for a simple reason. We were the stronger party. We were, in some sense, the victors. We had a state. We had a successful society. The Palestinians did not. 
But something profoundly tragic was happening on the Palestinian side at the same time, and many of us in Israel preferred not to notice. And that is that rather than reciprocating this massive Israeli initiative into Palestinian identity and history, on the Palestinian side, and by extension throughout the Arab world, the reverse process was taking place. And I remember at one point realizing that my children would come home from kindergarten or first grade waving little peace flags that they had drawn, Star of David entwined with a, with a dove. And there was this real sense of almost propagandistic peace education coming through the government, especially under the Labor Party in those years. And at some point, I had to face what was happening in the Palestinian educational system, where children were being taught to sing songs in praise of suicide bombers. And I remember one clip on Israel TV sometime in the mid-90s, which created a sensation, uh, which showed um, a group of uh, Palestinian children, kindergarten, first grade, uh, proudly being displayed by their teacher before the cameras. And each child stood and said, when I grow up, I am going to be a shaheed, a martyr in the streets of Jerusalem. So that eventually, even the most optimistic Israelis had to realize that we were living in a state of radical asymmetry in which one society was relating to the peace process as a peace process, as a process of reconciliation, while the leadership of the other society was systematically teaching its people the exact opposite. Under the leadership of Yasser Arafat through the 90s, a generation of Palestinian children were raised on the notion that all of Jewish history is a lie. Uh, I would call it the culture of denial that took over Palestinian society or educational system. A culture that systematically denied any legitimacy to the Jewish story. There was no ancient Jewish presence in the land of Israel. That's a biblical myth. There was no temple in Jerusalem. That, by the way, is something that Arafat told Clinton at Camp David, and Clinton was shocked to hear that. Uh, there was no Holocaust. You will routinely hear among Palestinians, including Palestinian intellectuals, that the Holocaust either didn't happen or was greatly exaggerated. The numbers were inflated by the Zionists to win world sympathy. And most of all, that the Jews are not a real nation. The Jews are a religion and don't have the right to sovereignty and to statehood. So that even as we were struggling with this conceptual breakthrough on the Israeli side of accommodating the rival narrative and finally accepting the premise that the Palestinians are a people with the right to self-definition, on the Palestinian side, not only was there not reciprocity, but the reverse process was taking hold. So that the tragedy of Oslo, in many ways, 
is that rather than fostering reconciliation by entrusting Palestinian education and media to Arafat's regime, Oslo guaranteed that by the end of this process, the Palestinian people, certainly the children growing up under Oslo, would be far less able emotionally, even theologically, ideologically able to accept the legitimacy of a two-state solution. And this became painfully clear to me during my journey into Islam in the late 90s. At one point, I was invited to pray, to participate in prayers in a Sufi mosque in a Gaza refugee camp. And I figured that it might be a good idea to try to arrange some protection. And through a mutual friend, I got to see General Nasser Youssef, who at the time was head of one of the security services in Gaza. And today, General Youssef is a very significant figure in the Palestinian Authority. He was appointed the interior minister uh, under uh, Mahmoud Abbas, which makes him number two, and more significantly, makes him in charge of the vast security apparatus in the West Bank and Gaza. And I went to see Nasser Youssef because I had heard from, from a mutual friend that the general was one of the leading moderates within the Palestinian Authority, was deeply opposed to terrorism, and that is the man that I encountered. I encountered a very fine man, really a refined person, uh, the kind of person one doesn't expect to meet as the head of a preventive security apparatus, someone who actually comes from a Sufi mystical family, and someone who is deeply committed to peace as he understands it. And I will explain that clause in a moment. And during the course of one conversation that I had with the general in his Gaza City office, I asked him, how do you see relations developing between our two peoples once we sign a peace agreement? Let's assume that all outstanding grievances are resolved there's a Palestinian state, we've dismantled the settlements or concentrated settlements along the border areas and offered the Palestinian state compensatory territory within Israel proper for whatever territory Israel takes from the West Bank. And that both sides feel they can live with the agreement, we've shared Jerusalem, we've even somehow solved the refugee problem. What then, what is your vision of peace between our two peoples? And that's a question that most of my colleagues in the Western media seldom ask Palestinian leaders. Because in the Western conception of peacemaking, when you sign an agreement, the agreement is definitive. There's, you sign a peace agreement, there then is peace. And I was interested to know if the general felt that after signing a peace agreement, that would actually bring peace between the two states. And he said that, well, first of all, the refugees will begin returning from the Palestinian diaspora. Many of them will not want to settle in a Palestinian state. They will insist on crossing over into Israel and in returning to their ancestral lands. 
And gradually the demographic balance within Israel will shift and Israel will become more and more binational. And then we'll realize that there's no need to maintain two separate little states in this small land and we'll create one state. And this will be such a beautiful state that we'll invite our neighbors to join. We'll invite Jordan to join the state. And then we'll invite Syria and Iraq during, this was during Saddam's reign. Why not? And we will show the world what a beautiful Middle East we can create together. And I said to the general that I was under the impression that we were negotiating a two-state solution. And he said, yes, as an interim agreement. And then he said that you Jews are not separate from us. There are Arab Christians, there are Arab Muslims, and you are our Arab Jews. And what I realized from the truly well-intentioned vision of the general was that even among moderates in the Palestinian leadership, there is no place in the long term for a Jewish state with a Jewish majority defining itself by Jewish culture, seeing itself as the latest phase of the Jewish story. Ultimately, there is no place for such a state in any borders. So that on the crucial question of legitimacy, on that crucial intangible of mutual legitimacy, there is, in practice, no real difference between Hamas and Fatah, between the fundamentalists who openly call for the destruction of Israel and the moderates who see the peace process as a means to perhaps the same end under different ways. When the Iranian president just recently called for wiping Israel off the map, there was international outrage and shock. Kofi Annan said he was dismayed. And personally, I found myself dismayed by his dismayal. And for a very simple reason, we in Israel have been hearing exactly that kind of rhetoric for years through the Oslo process. We heard it for years from Yasser Arafat. And much of the international community either didn't pay attention, didn't take it seriously when we raised these issues, or simply excused it away as saying, well, he has to contend with his extremists and he's just offering them a sop to bring them along. And what we now know is that if you are embarking on a peace process, you need to take risks for peace. And that includes telling your people the truth about the way to solve the conflict. Yitzhak Rabin paid for telling us the truth with his life. Rabin was the first prime minister who said, the dream of greater Israel is over. And he's the one who forced us to begin to accommodate in our conceptualization of the conflict, the presence of the other. So far, there has been no Palestinian leader who will tell his people what Rabin said, or for that matter, what Sharon just said 
at the UN a few weeks ago that the Palestinian people have the right to statehood. Who would have imagined Ariel Sharon, architect of the settlement movement, telling the world, telling his own people, that the Palestinian people have the right to statehood. The question lingers in public discourse over the Middle East about why the Oslo process failed. There remains to this day an argument about Camp David, for example. Was Israel's offer at Camp David really as generous as Israel insisted it was? Or did the Palestinians have a point that the map that Israel presented was, uh, was actually a, an unworkable map that didn't grant the Palestinians territorial contiguity, that broke up Palestinian territory with settlements and with interconnecting highways, and one can look at the different maps that are presented. I recently found in uh, Dennis Ross's book, Dennis Ross was the, was the Clinton administration's Middle East negotiator, chief negotiator. And he recently published a book called The Missing Peace. And at the beginning of the book, he, he publishes a series of maps he shows the map that the Palestinians presented on their website, on the Palestinian Authority's website, of what they said the Israeli offer was. And that, in fact, is a ludicrous map. And any self-respecting Palestinian leader would have been right to reject it. It shows a piece of Palestine here, another piece here. And what Ross notes is that that was, in fact, the Israeli offer at Camp David, but that was the opening offer. By the end of the week, there was a very different map. And Ross presents that map, and that is a map of territorial contiguity. The breakups are gone, the Bantustans have disappeared, so that we are beginning to see a coherent, reasonable map. And then Ross follows that map with a second map, and that's the map that would have created a Palestinian state based on the Clinton proposals of December 2000. And there, whatever lingering disagreements remain between the Israeli and Palestinian versions become entirely obsolete. Because there you see that what President Clinton proposed was a Palestinian state on 95% of the West Bank and 100% of Gaza, to 1% to 3% territory within pre-1967 Israel to be offered to a Palestinian state in return for settlement blocks along the border. Three out of four quarters of Jerusalem's old city to be transferred to Palestinian control. Israel said yes to the package. The Palestinian leadership said no. Why then did it fail? Why did Yasser Arafat say no? The reason, I believe, was not because of settlements, but because of the right of return. Clinton accepted the Israeli position on the right of return, which was that a two-state solution means that each state is responsible 
for absorbing its own refugees, its own immigrants. The Palestinian state would be in charge of in gathering its diaspora, just as Israel has been in gathering its diaspora over the last 60 years. So that the Palestinian leadership's insistence on maintaining the right of return not only to a Palestinian state, but also to Israel, as a way of destroying the Jewish majority, meant that the process failed, the Oslo process failed, not because of a Palestinian state. That was not the obstacle. And it wasn't because of settlements. The obstacle was the continued viability and legitimacy of a Jewish state. The result of the collapse of Oslo was that the Israeli left, which had won the argument in the 90s, all but collapsed. And I remember speaking shortly after the failure of the peace process to one of my colleagues in the Israeli media, someone who for many years had taken a very courageous and unpopular position that we need to negotiate with the PLO, we need to accept Arafat as a legitimate leader. This at a time in the 70s and the 80s when such a position was very unpopular in Israel. And he said to me that what's happening to him and to his friends on the left can only be compared to the crisis of faith that communists experienced in 1956 after the Khrushchev de-Stalinization speech when the Soviet premier, the new Soviet premier, exposed something of Stalin's crimes. And to just give you an idea of how profoundly despairing the Israeli public has become. A poll was just taken a few days ago that asked Israelis a very simple question. If we withdraw to the 1967 borders and dismantle the settlements, will we achieve peace? Will we win recognition and legitimacy from the Arab world? 74% of Israelis responded no. So that in order to understand what has happened in the last five years, you need to take that astonishing statistic into account. You had a society that was ready and that in principle still is ready to make the most far-reaching territorial compromises to become the first country in history to offer shared sovereignty over its capital city, for example. Yet at the same time, that same majority to which I belong believes that no amount of Israeli concessions, including dismantling the settlements, will actually win us peace and legitimacy. The, to understand the Israeli public today, you need to combine what we learned in the first intifada of the, of the 1980s and 90s with the second intifada. In the first intifada, we learned the truth of the Israeli left. We learned of the untenability of maintaining the occupation. In the second intifada, we learned the truth of the Israeli right. 
which is that this generation of Palestinian leadership is not prepared to truly accept a two-state solution as a permanent end to the conflict. And we'll continue to see this conflict as open and unresolved so long as a Jewish state exists. When the majority of Israelis came to realize that the two ideological positions that had essentially defined Israeli political debate over the last 30 years, peace now on the one hand and greater Israel of the settlement movement on the other, when we'd come to the conclusion that both of those positions were unworkable utopian visions, we came to the third and perhaps only option, which is if you can't occupy the Palestinians and if you can't make peace with their leadership in this phase of history, then the only logical recourse is for Israel to unilaterally define its minimal security borders and the occupation and the demographic danger to a democratic Jewish state and the moral danger to Israel's well-being, to Israel's soul, of continuing the occupation, and redefine unilaterally our own borders. That is precisely what we have begun to do. The first phase happened a few months ago in Gaza, when for the first time we dismantled settlements within the territories of the West Bank and Gaza. And I believe that that unilateral process will continue on the West Bank, so that the fence that Israel is building along through the, west, through the length of the West Bank may well come to define Israel's de facto borders if there is no sense on the Israeli side that we have a, par a partner within the Palestinian leadership with whom to negotiate a genuine end to the conflict. question then is how do, we, how do we move forward? I'd like to present to you a few possibilities and some of them focus on the tangibles of this conflict and some on the intangibles. For the first time in the history of this conflict there is now the beginnings of a Palestinian state. For the first time, there is a part of Palestine that is potentially sovereign if the Palestinian leadership chooses to declare statehood. The, in dismantling the settlements and withdrawing from Gaza, Israel, in effect, went to the very end of the new proposed peace process known as the roadmap. Everybody talks about the roadmap I don't know if too many people have actually read it. For very good reason. These documents tend to be terribly boring. But what the roadmap stipulates is that Israel will dismantle settlements at the very end of the process. So that what Sharon did by, in effect, jump-starting, going to the very end of the roadmap, was create a new dynamic. On the Palestinian side, according to the roadmap, 
the prerequisite, in fact, before the roadmap even begins to actually be implemented, the Palestinian leadership must disarm the terrorist groups. That includes not only Hamas, but also those armed groups within Fatah, who in some ways are an even greater problem for the Palestinian Authority imposing its rule of law. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is far preferable to Yasser Arafat, certainly in the rhetoric uh, that, he, that, that, that he doesn't indulge in, we haven't heard much hateful rhetoric from Abbas. There have been a few slips, but on the whole, he is far preferable to, to Arafat. Nevertheless, he has made what I fear is a fatal decision for his own authority in refusing to implement the prerequisite, that first step that the Palestinian leadership is required to implement under the roadmap. He has tried to implement a ceasefire. What we see happening in Israel with periodic terrorism, with periodic missiles coming across the border, is that the ceasefire is too fragile and you can't proceed with negotiations when you have a vast and armed terrorist infrastructure holding the peace process permanently hostage. So that as a first step, that is what needs to be done as an act of, certainly an act of reciprocity. When Palestinians tell me that Sharon has created a trap for them, that Gaza first is really Gaza last and Sharon has no intention of actually proceeding with further withdrawals, my answer is very simple. Israel is a democracy. You have in Israel today a solid majority of people that are ready to do almost anything to end this conflict if we could be convinced that the conflict would truly end. Settlements will not be an obstacle if the Israeli majority believes that we will win legitimacy in return for dismantling settlements. So that the onus now is on the Palestinian leadership to prove to a desperate but skeptical Israeli public that it is possible to truly work toward a two-state solution. And that is the dynamic in which the withdrawal from Gaza, in which the, the uprooting of those 21 settlements as, if you will, a down payment for the future, that's the dynamic that's been created today. And the momentum, or the onus, has definitely shifted to the Palestinian side, certainly from the point of view of the overwhelming majority of Israelis, left, right, and center. But no less important than these tangibles of this disarming the terrorists, producing tangible proofs of coexistence, no less significant are the intangibles. What we, the Israeli skeptical, desperate majority, need to see on the Palestinian side is the beginning of a debate over the legitimacy of the Jewish story. That we are not a colonialist intrusion in the Middle East, but we are an indigenous people that has returned home. Until we start hearing those words 
coming from at least part of the Palestinian leadership, I, as an Israeli, will remain convinced that no amount of concessions, no amount of settlement dismantling will actually bring Israel peace. The conflict, and I'll conclude in, in a few moments and open up for discussion. The conflict between Arabs and Jews began a hundred years ago as a conflict that I would define as being between narrative and presence. And by that I mean that when the Jewish people began returning home, the Palestinians had the far stronger advantage of actual presence in the land. But the Jewish side had the stronger advantage of narrative. We had placed the land of Israel at the center of our being for 2,000 or more years. And there, there was no stronger attachment of any people to that land through its narrative and through its own historical self-definition than the Jewish narrative. Nevertheless, the Palestinians certainly had the advantage in terms of presence. Now, when I say that this was a struggle initially between presence and narrative, uh, it's important not to oversimplify because the Palestinians certainly had some form of narrative. They had stories, if not yet a coherent Palestinian story. And the Jews certainly had presence in the land, if not as strong as the Palestinians. Uh, for example, there was a Jewish majority in Jerusalem beginning in the 1850s, which is to say some three decades before political Zionism even organized. So that we never ceded presence, and the Palestinians certainly never ceded narrative. But there's no question that in this balance of power, in this struggle between the two sides, the Palestinians had the advantage of presence, we had the advantage of narrative. What has happened in the subsequent decades is that each side began to compensate for what it lacked. The Palestinian people developed a strong and coherent narrative, in large measure as a response to the Zionist narrative, and the Jewish people strengthened its presence in the land, so that today there is no question of the legitimacy of a Palestinian narrative, and there should be no question of the legitimacy of Jewish presence. Today, we have a majority of Israelis who would feel very comfortable with the formulation that I've just offered. When we begin to have even a strong minority of Palestinians who will begin to articulate that same formula, I believe we will be poised for the return of the peace process. And the last point that I'd like to make is that the way in which I conceive of a negotiated settlement would be offering settlements versus 
the Palestinian right of return. Israel yields on the settlement project, the Palestinians yield on the right of return. Very often, the settlements tend to be paired with terrorism. The Palestinians need to stop terrorism, the Jews need to stop settling the land. I think that that is missing the point. Because the real symmetry here, the real equation, is that settlements are the Jewish expression of our right of return to greater Israel, just as the Palestinian dream of refugee return to Israel is an expression of their dream of greater Palestine. By giving up the settlement project, Israel will be restraining its longing for the wholeness of the land of Israel. By giving up the right of return, or by confining the right of return to a Palestinian state, the Palestinian leadership will be making that same reciprocal statement. We accept the legitimacy of a Jewish state, and we need to contract our aspirations for greater Palestine. What peace requires, then, is for Jews and Palestinians to pull out of each other's territory, and to stop trying to subvert each other's narrative. I'll make one last point, with your permission, and then open up. And that is beyond this formal piece of one side yielding settlements, the other side yielding the right of return, I'd like to offer you a vision of peace based on intangibles. And that is that each side in this conflict is psychologically stuck and ironically the other side has, I believe, the key to its psychological release, to its freedom. What the Jewish people need most is an affirmation of their renewed rootedness in the land that the exile is over and we have come home. So far, that is precisely what we have not received from the Arab world, and it's only the Arab world that can truly accept our homecoming and make our homecoming substantial. On their part, I feel that what the Arab world needs is the opposite of rootedness, it's expansiveness, a sense of becoming part of this emerging planetary consciousness in which we are groping towards some sense of oneness. And the Arab world is still very much apart from that process, economically, intellectually. And here is where I feel Israel can offer the Arab world a sense of connectedness, of expansiveness, because the Jewish people as a world people a people returning from its many wanderings, has the restlessness of the outside world which the Arab world needs. So in my vision of peace, beyond the questions of settlements and, and terror and right of return, ultimately I see a more profound transfusion of sensibilities in which the Arab world would grant Israel the legitimacy of rootedness in the Middle East, and we would free the Arab world from its excessive rootedness and 
infuse the Middle East with a sense of expansiveness. If we can begin to grope toward those forms of intangible relationships, then I believe we may truly reach the point of a new Middle East. Thank you very much.